2: The German economy is simple. They make things for export. They don't buy a lot of things for themselves. Because they're saving, that wealth has to go somewhere. It ends up buying assets outside of the country, and in particular, the rest of the Eurozone. Among German politicians and Germans, there's almost a universal agreement that this is the only and best way to run an economy. And yet... The German model is bad for Germany's trading partners. It's definitely bad for the Eurozone. And it's possibly now even bad for Germany itself. If you sell things to China and the United States, you need those countries to be healthy and you need to trust them. Those are assumptions that suddenly feel questionable. And so this month, Peter Altmaier, Germany's economy minister, released a plan to create a state investment fund. It's going to protect German companies against foreign acquisitions. Unspoken is that the country he's worried about is China. What we wanted to know is, is this a departure? Is Germany changing its model?
3: This is what I always say to my German friends. You know, you're a trade dependent, security exposed, norm abiding status quo power in a world that's changing. And you better start thinking about where you want to be in a decade. Now Altmaier may be thinking about that. If so, I congratulate him.
2: This is AlphaChat, a project from the Financial Times and the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. I'm Brendan Greeley. I'm the U.S. editor for FT Alphaville. The voice you just heard is Wade Jacoby. He's a political scientist at Brigham Young University in Salt Lake City. He writes volumes about the German economy and its party politics. You will hear Mark Blythe, as usual. He's the director of the Rhodes Center. We also brought in Megan Green. She's the chief economist at Manulife Investments and a friend of AlphaChat. She also speaks German and once got an offer to work for the German finance ministry. More on that later, but we started with Wade. We asked him about this proposal from Peter Altmaier and this almost existential quote it contains, the German economy is not God-given. Here's Wade.
3: Well, maybe there is an existential issue here, but it's possible that the God-given comment relates to something quite positive in German economic thinking, which is essentially the idea that if our democracies require a constitution, our economies do as well. And one interpretation, I suppose, I don't know what Altmaier meant by it, but one interpretation is that he's hearkening back to that long line of German thinking, which I think is quite admirable, that there need to be rules and that they need to be relatively clear and straightforward and that those rules, um, above all, should have the object of promoting a fair and open competition in a market economy. And in that sense, um, it requires politics. And so unlike a lot of neoliberal thinking that we're familiar with in the Anglo-American world, there's always been among the German order liberals at least a sense that we have to write the rules, make them public, and then enforce them. That God can't make the market. We have to.
2: Let me jump in real quick, because that word, we're allowed one jargon word per hour, and we just hit it in the first five minutes. And I wanted to hit it, but maybe I'll go to Mark. Like, l- help us understand what this word ordoliberalism means and why it's central to the way the Germans see markets.
1: So building off of what Wade just said, Ordo liberalism is a doctrine that comes from a journal that was published in the 30s called Ordo, which means order. And it's based around the school of Freiburg in Germany, which was a legal school rather than an economic school. And basically, it was, as Wade said, an attempt to give the economy a constitution. That is to say that the free play of market forces does not lead to optimal outcomes. It can lead to concentration, monopoly, cartels, lots of things that the Germans thought went badly wrong in the Nazis period. And therefore, you had to have a whole series of rules to make competition work, unlike the Adam Smith version of the world where competition just happens. They don't think it just happens. You need to have rules. You need to have competition authorities. Uh, There's an aspect of this that then leads to the thinking about central banking, which is very important, obviously. And it's just a very different form of liberalism, an ordered liberalism rather than a free market and spontaneous one. It's basically
2: an understanding that the state doesn't hinder the market. The state creates the market.
1: I wouldn't say creates, it encapsulates the market. That's a way to think about it. It's it's more about encasing the market to make it work. The market will be there, but to make it work, you need to have rules.
0: So the idea is if you just let free markets run, you'll end up with all these monopolies popping up. So order liberalism is, is a theory by which governments have to step in and regulate so that the theory of free markets can look like that in reality.
2: So one of the things that's happened also in the last month is that Germany has suggested reconsidering the competition rules within the European Union, um, and that they consider competition from outside the union rather than ensuring competition within the union. And the response from some German companies in the German opposition has been, you are rewriting the rules of ordo Is that what's happening, Wade?
3: Well, if you look back just a couple of decades, um, there have been concerns in Europe, of course, about mergers and acquisitions. Outside of European territory, um, so I don't think that's entirely new. Uh, I'm more I'm more concerned that the Germans uh, seem to me to be adding a bit of concern about market concentration, especially from Chinese, onto an existing structure of of German uh, economic policy that's that's really pretty unhealthy, and it's that part that I don't really see much indication of change in. The Germans are. Uh, definitely in the last 15 years overcommitted to external sources of growth. They're leaning much less on investment and much less on domestic consumption than they've historically done. And uh, it's those elements of the formula that I really don't see in flux. And without some basic changes there, I'm a little concerned that the the things that Altmaier is proposing uh, are likely to be more cosmetic than fundamental.
2: So let's let's talk about what that actually means. I mean, what Germany was responding to with the suggestion that these rules change is that it's concerned about competition from China, and then also Wade, what you seem to be alluding to is that Germany has oriented its entire economic model around exporting, basically, to China. So when we talk about these things about Germany reconsidering how it runs its economy, its economy is Germany experiencing a China shock?
3: Well, for sure. There's an element of that. Of course, the Germans have been exporting to everybody. Um, For a long time during the early 2000s, their exports were flowing within Europe to Eastern Europe and Southern Europe in particular. And um, obviously, after 2009, it was sort of a natural for them as a capital goods exporting country that made great machines to send a lot of those machines to a China that that was reflating its economy quite aggressively. And of course, a lot of German exports go to the US as well. Um, that's really the fundamental thing. What, what, what's possibly shifted with Altmaier's thinking is this notion that after witnessing with some degree of – with some relaxation, I would say, the first decade of Chinese investment in Europe um, – There's a lot of concern now that some of the crown jewels of German industry might end up legally, fiscally in the hands of uh, state-owned enterprises from China, which are simply not transparent and which um, have a long track record of repatriating critical and sensitive technologies uh, to China. So that's certainly a significant concern. And it, for me, more or less dovetails with the longstanding German concern to keep their export-driven economy at the center of their public's thinking and at the center of the party political negotiations over what policy should be. I think Germany started
0: pivoting towards China really significantly at the beginning of the Euro crisis. And that wasn't a bad tact, right? The German government um, put out a ton of tenders for consultants asking how they can figure out how to export more to China um, and expose themselves less to the countries around them which weren't doing particularly well. So I think it was a short-term smart strategy. I think what we're finding now, um, particularly given the fight that you're seeing the U.S. in with China, is that Germany's thinking, well, we're exposed to China. Um, China's buying up some of our high-tech companies right now. You had KUKA, the robotics company, in 2016 that's been a real concern for Germany. Um, maybe this wasn't a good long term call. So I think they've got a bit of remorse that way and are trying to grapple with how they can address this now.
2: And they're coming up with specific policy measures. This is the state investment fund to prevent acquisitions by Chinese companies.
0: Yep, that's right. You know, the goal is that private sector companies will step in and protect national champions. But where that can't happen, then the government can step in. That is a form of protectionism. And we're seeing that across the board, across the developed world in response to the emergence of China and the Made in China 2025 strategy.
2: Right. I mean, I, one of the things I noticed when I was uh, you know, preparing to have this conversation is that much of the best research there is on Made in China 2025, what it means, where it comes from, comes from Germany. So, you know, I'm used to looking at this from the U.S. perspective and the industries in the U.S. that are threatened. But how threatened does Germany feel specifically by that plan?
0: So I think Germany feels extremely threatened by the plan. And I think, um, you know, the German government was shocked when the U.S. unilaterally went ahead with trade measures on China, I think the thinking was that it's not just Germany and the U.S., but a whole bunch of other European countries as well who are concerned about Made in China 2025. And so the idea had been, well, maybe we can form some kind of coalition. And then the U.S. sort of jumped the shark. But the, the Germans were really surprised by this because they had their concerns around intellectual property, forced technology transfers, government subsidies of high-tech industries are completely aligned with the U.S.'s.
3: And to be fair, this is a real shift for the Germans. Um, I remember 10 years ago looking at uh, the German news magazine, business magazine Focus, and they had done a survey of all of the important Chinese acquisitions in Germany to that point. And um, you know the conclusion was quite relaxed, that the Chinese had been generous investors, that they hadn't really tampered with the German social model, um, that they didn't seem terribly interested in packing technology back to China. But that was sort of a broader story at that period, where uh, I think China was looking for outlets for uh, investment abroad through SOEs, and some of the work I did in Central and Eastern Europe suggested a similar pattern, that there was no real China Inc strategy visible at that period, that the Chinese were dipping their toes into a lot of different ponds, uh, having some good experiences and some terrible experiences, losing lots of money in some places. And there was a kind of relaxed view of this, even though the overall numbers were going up fairly steadily, um, people were not so concerned. I think with China 2025, and the last four or five years, KUKA, again, being a big, a big moment, uh, there's been a sense that, the Chinese are definitely thinking much more strategically about this than they were in phase one. And here we are in Germany and Europe with no equivalent of the American CFIUS program. We don't really have a way of investigating these investments and trying to do trying to figure out who's behind them. It's often very, very hard to tell uh, who's doing what. So I think the level of concern is obviously ratcheted up quite a lot.
0: It's worth pointing out that the Germans aren't on the back foot the same way that they were. I mean, if, if you think back to 2010, the Germans and others were really hoping the Chinese would come in and kind of save the day on the euro crisis, that they would buy up a whole bunch of ports and sovereign debt and other assets, and they would provide the investment that they couldn't otherwise find in Europe. So um, the Germans were really on the back foot in those days. Now, I think they're, they're looking at this from a different, much stronger position, thinking, how do we strategically deal with this?
1: But that raises an interesting question, to go back to our original question about sort of Germany, Inc., Ordo liberalism, the German model, exports, the whole lot. So a couple of factors to throw in here. If you want to be on the front foot, if you want to substitute for that investment, if you want to basically be the, the master of your own destiny, you're going to have to spend some money. And that goes completely against the entire German political economy, which is a monomaniacal attempt to destroy their own sovereign debt as fast as possible. The other one is the diesel crisis. And the second-hand diesel market in Germany is pretty much collapsed. The cities in Germany themselves are saying, we're, we're not taking these cars anymore. And that was a huge part of the most important export industry they have, which is autos. So if you put these factors together, I, I think it suggests that you know they might not think that the model's fundamentally changing, but it is, whether they like it or not. Uh, well, Wade,
2: let me put that to you. We'll take the first part of what Mark said, which is that Germany's sort of curious ability to run a, a primary surplus over the last several years. Um, And that one of the concerns, you know, we're going to talk about the possibility of a German downturn uh, in a second. But one of their concerns is that they won't be able to run this surplus anymore. And so everybody outside of Germany looks at that and thinks, that's insane. Why, when you have these infrastructure spending needs, why, when you have the possibility of a slowdown looming, would you be concerned about maintaining your 0.8% Uh, a primary surplus. Um, Is that going to change? Is there any sign that that thinking will change in Germany?
3: There is no real sign that that thinking is changing in Germany. The easiest place to look um, would be the coalition agreement between the two major parties. There was going to be a change in the finance ministry. Um, Olaf Scholz was going to come in. Wolfgang Schäuble was going to leave after eight long years. And um, many people thought, well, maybe this time we'll see a difference in policy. And not only did the coalition agreement signal no such difference, uh, the Schultz policies seem to me indistinguishable from those of his predecessor. So you know we're still in a situation now where Germany's capital stock is actually less in absolute terms than it was in 2007, despite an economy that's grown 30% during that time. It's a shocking policy combination, but it definitely does goose exports.
2: Well, I mean, is it fair to say that you can export your way out of problems or you can spend your way out of problems? And so Germany uh, sort of looking with concern at the possibility of continuing to export, but not at all considering the alternative.
3: Well, somebody somewhere must be considering it because it's a fairly simple calculation. I mean, every national government, Germany's no different, grows from a combination of three things. It's domestic consumption, it's domestic investment, and it's net trade. And Germany has essentially been um, depressing the first two for 15 years now, and therefore it has to, by definition, lean on the third. And then the Chinese were with them in this for a long time, but the Chinese have decided a decade ago that this is um, not a viable long-term strategy for a number of reasons. The politics of it are incredibly difficult to change, both in China and they would be in Germany if Germany tried to change it. So I don't want to imply that it's easy, but it is pretty straightforward. What the Germans are doing is essentially depressing the amount of national income that goes to uh, to goes to wage and salary earners, and um, at the same time running a big budget surplus, which is now one point seven five percent of GDP. And since they consistently underestimate their tax take every year, they end up with one of these "Oops, we did it again" stories uh, almost every every year. So we end up with you know a country that. Not in its private households, but in its business, the corporate sector and in the government sector are running these big saving surpluses. And as a consequence, we just don't have the demand, the capacity to purchase uh, among the sort of rank and file Germans. And of course, it is a political problem. People are unhappy about it, angry about it. But I don't see a lot of indications from either of the major parties that they're seriously rethinking this.
0: So when I took my current job, I was supposed to go work in the German finance ministry. and My only job was going to be to say really unpopular things like, why don't you guys actually spend more? Um, Or why don't you invest more? It would boost your economy, it would trickle out and help the rest of the Eurozone. It's a win-win for everyone. Um, And the only remotely economically literate response that I got that wasn't some kind of hyper, but then we get inflation, or we just love having a balanced budget. The only legitimate response I got was, we've got terrible demographics in Germany, and so we're really worried about having to borrow and foist this all onto our children and grandchildren. That, that's the counter argument that they've got. Um, I would say German demographics aren't as bad as some other countries, but it's one argument they give.
1: Well, the weird thing about that is I've heard that argument as well, and, and they're sincere in making it, right? So the replacement rate is 1.4. So they haven't had enough kids. They know they're not going to do mass immigration. They tried. It's failing. It's not working, AFD, all the rest of it. So given that, you're basically going to have to either grow your economy or shrink your debt stock. And they have decided they're going to shrink their debt stock because they can't grow their economy. So this is the first time I've ever encountered a modern sort of society that says, let's all shrink. That's good policy. And that's essentially what they're doing.
2: I think it's amazing that they considered bringing Megan in specifically to play the role of American to say unpopular things. That to me is fascinating because it means that on some level they know they they need. It's like when you bring in McKinsey to say the thing that you can't bear to tell your own corporate board. So so then it's McKinsey's fault. It had to be the Americans fault. That was the plan.
0: Yeah. I mean, I did point out that I disagree with most things that they're doing. Their response was, why bring in a yes, man? So to their credit, they were interested in open thinking. Um, I would say on the growth front, though, why shrink instead of decide to grow your economy? When I talk to the German government about ways to boost their GDP growth, they look at me bewildered and say, growth is such an Anglo-Saxon obsession. We have a really high standard of living and really low unemployment, um, so, you know, why should we care about GDP growth, which I think is a different perspective that Japan also shares some other developed countries. So I think that's their perspective.
2: Wade, is that true? Is growth an unfortunate Anglo-Saxon obsession?
3: Well, I've had the same experience as Megan has had giving these talks in Germany many times over the past several years. And there is a sort of bewilderment there because, unfortunately, the the debate among the policy networks and in the media is so constrained that the you really don't hear any other alternative points of view uh coming out very often um so yeah I mean um yeah certainly the 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 growth story the growth story in Germany is a very humble one um it, the numbers just aren't there and haven't been there for a very long time the the thing that that Germans i think miss more than anything else though is that their decisions to undertake policies that have the effect of limiting german growth also have difficult effects for for neighboring countries so in the first instance here i'm speaking of the very large capital outflows from Germany that have to uh, come as a consequence of these persistent current account surpluses. So if you constantly produce more than you consume, that extra should be understood as flowing out of your country in the form of portfolio or FDI to other places. And the biggest German confusion, I think, in the policy circles is just that they see this as a great gift to the rest of the world. Here's our extra capital that we uh, don't need and can't use for reasons we don't want to talk about. But it's a great thing for you, so don't worry about why we're not using it. And it's going to lower your capital costs. And and Germans often think as if this money doesn't have to be paid back. But, of course, when it flows in to these other countries that obviously can't really stop it if they have open capital accounts or members of the Eurozone, um, it can lead to all kinds of difficult, complicated domestic Asset bubbles uh, can lead ultimately to unemployment as governments try desperately to stave off the effects of having lost their own manufacturing industries and the employment associated with that. So, you know, just to say, you know, we don't really believe in growth the same way that you do is, I think, to leave the conversation quite a bit short of where we want it to be.
2: Yeah, but this is fascinating. This is something that I've encountered too in, in conversations with my German friends. That there's no comprehension whatsoever that the, that savings that they're so proud of goes anywhere and that it could possibly cause any problems when it arrives. But there's a common theme to this conversation that I'm hearing from all three of you, which is that there are certain cultural assumptions in Germany and they will not change. But we can look at an example of another country, Japan, where the barriers to growth were cultural um, and they've been making some shifts. They are more open to the possibility of, uh, of of immigration and labor. In the last five years, if you look at the percentage of women in the workforce in Japan, there's been a real shift. You can see it in the data. So, you know, why is it that Japan is able to to shift its cultural assumptions in the service of growth and Germany is not?
0: So it may be a question of time frame, right? That Japan's gone through decades of stagnation, it, it might be that Germany needs to go through that before they're willing to start to think about growth differently and about how they can um, set up their economic system.
2: Uh, Wade, Mark just made a point, um, you know, there are various ways that you can grow. One of them is through immigration. Um, he said mass immigration is failing in Germany. Did, do, you, do you see it that way? Is, did the experiment fail?
3: Yeah, I think it has, at least to now. Um, The Germans made an extraordinary effort. And I think German civil society had one of its finest hours in a way in trying very hard with sort of no real cultural memory in recent terms of how to do this. I mean, they'd they'd had a, a migration refugee wave in the 90s from the Yugoslav Wars. And there was a kind of a dim cultural memory of after the Second World War when millions of refugees flooded into West Germany. But on the basis of a very thin set of traditions, they did a pretty darn good job. They got the administration in place. They wasted a lot of money, however. Um, I think a lot of the spending has gone on really silly hotel uh, uh, and motel expenses, including for rooms that aren't even occupied. There have been lots and lots of scandals about, about that. Uh, and I think the labor market story has been pretty disappointing. Um, companies, the big companies seem more interested in, in sort of PR than in actually hiring lots of migrants. And I say migrants because some were clearly refugees and some were clearly immigrants. And um, the small and medium-sized enterprises have not found that the skill on balance, that the skill sets they had hoped for are there. So and then the political backlash that Mark talked about is, is very, very real. So yeah, I think to a first approximation, this move has not worked out very well.
0: Just to give a silver lining, the at least the dialogue around this has shifted a, l- a little bit from sort of a gastarbeiter program, so a guest worker program, to an actual refugee or immigrant policy that doesn't fundamentally involve everybody going home after a couple of years, which had been the assumption in previous waves of immigration.
2: Let's take the point that you made just a second ago, Megan, that uh, you know one reason that they're not willing to change is that they just may not be desperate enough is that necessity is the mother of invention. Um, So let's look at sort of what's happening right now within German growth. Uh, We've had a couple of months of some bad data, some good data. Is it possible to look at Germany uh, and say that they are on the precipice of a downturn?
0: So Germany's just barely missed being in a technical recession, um, and there have been some pretty bad data prints, um, particularly related to industrial production. A lot of economists are arguing that they're, those are one-off factors. So regulation in the auto industry, for example, has caused a huge slowdown there. Low water levels in the water, Rhine. Yes. Water levels it's my in the favorite Rhine. one. <laughs> which, honestly, as an economist, I roll my eyes every time we use the weather as an excuse because we use it as an excuse both ways. Bad weather means more growth, or sometimes it means worse growth. It, you know, it's just kind of the, the ultimate excuse. But actually, um, transportation costs over land are, um, several multiples of what they are on the Rhine. So that actually could play a part in terms of shipments and production. Um, protests in Hungary actually um, could hurt the auto industry going forward. But um, but I also think that you know, given the pivot that Germany's made towards China, I think China's probably growing between zero and one percent realistically right now. And so that's really hurt Germany as well, but looking at Germany much more fundamentally, um, while Germany was really busy demanding every peripheral European country implement structural reforms. In this last cycle, Germany hasn't implemented a single structural reform since Gerhard Schröder's Hartz II employment reforms, right? So, and I do know that the CDU in particular has, has been talking about this for about a year now. Maybe it's time for us to think about some structural reforms. What,
2: but what might that mean? What would what would those structural reforms be?
0: So it would be, you know, opening up product la- markets more than labor markets. I think um, it's. I think um, the product markets are much more rigid. In Germany. So you could come up with some policies to do that. But the time to do that isn't when Germany is already in a downturn. The time to do that would have been, for example, last year when Germany was surging. So I think we've missed that boat. Unfortunately. I
2: mean, ironically, it is when they have forced structural changes on other countries. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, that's exactly the point I was going to make. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yay! I win. Um, But, you know, with uh, Megan was just talking, wait, about the uh, industrial production data um, that has been bad for one or two months. And, you know, maybe noise, maybe signal Um, at the same time, consumption has been strong uh, in Germany. Is it possible that this shift towards consumption is going to happen, whether they plan for it or not?
3: Well, I think it would be much more likely to happen if they would just go ahead and plan for it. I mean, <laughs> that would that's what I, my preference would be, would be to see the VAT taxes lowered back down. They were raised fairly sharply uh, on fiscal prudence grounds 10 years ago. Um, It's very clear that Germany has the space to try to promote more consumption. This would help. You know, think about the folks working in the the shops at the lower end of the labor market. They're the ones with a really high tax wedge on their labor. Uh, We could reduce their social security contributions. Um, put more money in their pocket in a variety of different ways. We do have a minimum wage that's been introduced as of the last government. That was an important step, but it isn't a very robust minimum wage. We could do minimum pensions. And then on the business side, there are lots of things, since Germany is is really hurting for private investment, there are lots of things that the government could do. And maybe some of Altmaier's policy proposals will go in this direction. There's been some talk about some R&D credits, which would be a good idea particularly if the government could structure them to stimulate more companies to invest more in their own R&D, where Germany, I think, often falls short. It's surprising sometimes to think of Germany as technologically uh, not exactly standing still, but it's certainly not surging ahead. And um, so there are a number of things that they really could do, uh, and these things are a robust part of the German debate already, so it's not like um, outsiders have to tell them all these ideas. These are ideas that, that sort of naturally, in a sense, emanate, bubble up from a society that is dealing with with really increasing levels of inequality. German market incomes are exactly as unequal as American market incomes. They redistribute a lot more afterwards. But even that, you could reach out to conservatives and say, hey, would you like to redistribute less? Well, do something about labor markets. Do something about, you know, taxes. Do something about take-home pay. So there are lots of things that the German policy folks could do. Uh, they just haven't decided to do them up to now.
1: But, Wade, you must remember, as, as I'm sure I do, that the new incumbent at the finance ministry just about three weeks ago said, it looks like taxes aren't going to come in as hard as we thought this time. We're going to have a shortfall, and therefore we'll need to do some cuts And this is right on the edge. This this is right on the edge of a recession. I do. You're saying we're going to have cuts. I mean, nothing ever seems to change.
2: I actually I have to jump in here. I'm in the curious position of knowing how to say Groundhog's Day in German. Oh, thank you. Because I was an exchange student. In Germany, the year that movie came out originally, and they didn't know how to translate what a groundhog was or what Groundhog Day was. And so the movie poster read, Und grüßt
1: das Murmeltier, which right. means, and every day the weasel says hello. <laughs> As I'm sure it does. <laughs> But the serious point being the finance ministry hasn't changed its tune at all, and they could be debating R&D or cutting this tax or that tax, but at the end of the day, the the belief is that if you're facing a tax shortfall, regardless of the overall cyclical condition, you tighten the budget. And that, that just ends in a recession, right?
3: It's so true, and, it, and, it, and it's the belief thing that's really the critical point here, because you know, I'm sure Megan's had a similar experience. When you try to explain these things in German policy circles, you get these very strange conversations in which um, the supposedly mysterious effects of current accounts uh, are held to be sort of two points south of witchcraft by the same economists who are telling you confidently that they can calculate fiscal spillovers to the second decimal point. It's just disingenuous at some point.
2: I find myself in the strange position of feeling defensive about Germans right now because, you know, we're sitting here, all four of us talking about everything that they do wrong and ways in which they think about economic growth the wrong way. And yet the reason they can do it wrong is because that model has been successful enough that they can afford the luxury of doing it wrong. I mean, should, do, do any of the rest of you feel guilty about this? I feel like we should have a German in the room while we're beating up on them.
3: Well, it's a result, though, of beggar thy neighbor policies. So if you reshape your domestic economy to the extent that consumption is that hard to do, um, you're going to be drawing on relatively limited parts of external demand. And that's the thing that's scarce today. The Germans act like what's scarce is capital. And by giving their capital to the rest of the world, they're doing the world a favor. This is not what's scarce. We don't live in a world of capital scarcity. We live in a world of demand scarcity. And so as a consequence, I find it really hard to be that sympathetic. These are complicated ideas. They're not easy ideas, but they're also not rocket science. Otherwise, I couldn't do them. And and I feel like the policy circles in Germany, if they don't exactly have to accept them, but just to debate them openly and thoroughly instead of consistently uh, sort of trotting out apologists at the Bundesbank who say, oh, there's nothing to see here. Move along.
0: I think it's also curious that the the Germans didn't learn from the eurozone crisis in that they're exporting all their savings into things like the Greek government bond market and the Irish property market and the Portuguese retail market and uh, all these investments went really bad, um, but the Germans didn't have to take losses because that's how they constructed their response mechanism to the euro crisis and I think that that is Merkel's legacy for Germany. That's pretty much her primary contribution to Germany is to protect Germany's interests during the Eurozone crisis.
2: Could we describe Merkelism, Wade? Is is, is it what Megan just said it is?
3: It's basically Gerhard Schroeder with an emergency fund. I mean, the, the policies have remained roughly speaking the same. It's just that Merkel is a very clever politician has been good at figuring out when those policies reach certain political limits. When those are domestic political limits, she can tack and move and accommodate. When those are international political limits, she's been willing to bail people out and, and to rescue. But the fundamental drivers of the German economy haven't really changed since the combination of the Euro's introduction, which freed Germany from the sort of up and down of, of the trade account because, you know, whenever the trade account started to get out of line, um, the rising day mark would bring it back down again. Imports would boom a little bit and exports would suffer a bit and we'd come back into balance. But that combination of Schroeder's Hartz reforms, which Megan referenced earlier, and the introduction of the euro has sen- essentially put Germany on a new trajectory and Merkelism hasn't really generated an authentic and original contribution to that underlying policy mix.
1: So is it fair to say then, if we go back to the whole notion of you know the export Weltmeister and all this sort of stuff, that despite being a successful model, what we have in Germany is an incredibly fragile model. Because if all it's doing is sucking in demand from the rest of the world, if the rest of the world stops generating demand, you don't have a model because you simply have no domestic source of growth that you can in a domestic source of productivity growth or or just growth in general that you can tickle domestically to compensate for that lack of exports. So in a sense, they're much more vulnerable than they seem. Right. This is what I always
3: say to my German friends. You know, you're a you're a trade dependent, security exposed, norm abiding, status quo power in a world that's changing, and you better start thinking about where you want to be in a decade. Now, Altmaier maybe be thinking about that. And I, I, if so, I congratulate him. But I think that the, the kinds of industrial concerns he has, while clearly relevant for Germany's future, clearly relevant, need to be put in a macroeconomic context that has so far been missing.
0: Yeah, just to be a German apologist for one second, I would say they have um, actually rebalanced a little bit more towards domestic demand throughout this last cycle, largely because um, the Eurozone was doing so poorly around them. So there has been some slight rebalancing, but I think that's right, that if the rest of the world um, goes into a downturn, then there really is no significant engine for German growth. And it's you know it wasn't that long ago that Germany was the sick man of Europe, so it's not inconceivable that this could happen again.
2: I mean, one of the things that's for me that I'm beginning to understand is this conversation is that I had thought that there was a post-war strategy for Germany, and this was a continuation of it. But what I think Wade just said, I want to make sure I understand this correctly, Wade, is that that what we're looking at is a post-euro strategy for Germany, is that if if it was an exporting nation, the introduction of the euro completely changed the consequences of being an adamantly exporting nation. Is that right?
3: It really did. It didn't require a fundamental shift in domestic institutions. Germans had been saving for a very long time and at at rates that were above, you know, their European uh, counterparts – Uh, There were a number of ways in which the Bundesbank operated that uh, didn't really change very much across the the scope of uh, post-war German history. But then, of course, when you get the Euroshock, that is is definitely fundamentally different. The easiest way to think about it is in the old days when the German export machine really was running very, very hot – um, the currencies, as I said, would adjust and would force adjustment on the economy. Now, um, in the last, you know, fifteen years, the eurozone economy has often done quite badly. And that has, of course, brought down the value of the euro and therefore uh, tended to soften German imports and and boost German exports. So the euro certainly accentuates very much an underlying tendency towards export that had been there uh, since uh, at the latest the middle of the 1950s. I
2: want to wrap this up by asking you all the same question, which is we've been talking about certain German cultural assumptions about the way you run an economy. Um, and that at some point they're going to have to change, for the good of Germany, if not even for the good of Europe. What is the event that's going to make that happen? Megan?
0: I think it would have to be some kind of hard landing in China, so that China can't bail the rest of us, and particularly Germany, out in the next downturn.
2: Mark?
1: Slow down in China, but more specifically, if they get their way with Made in China 2025, then the China shock which hit the United States is about to hit them, and it'll rip through their industries the same way they did to ours.
2: Wade, I'm going to give you the last word. What changes the way Germans think?
3: Serious foreign policy difficulties. They would have to spend a lot more on foreign policy and defense. I mean, free security from a superpower is great if you can get it. If you can't, you'll do something different.
2: Wade, Megan, Mark, thank you. This has been great. My pleasure. All of us. Thanks. Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance and Amy Keene from the Financial Times. We'll be posting show notes on AlphaVille with links, but as always, please email us, alphachat at ft.com. For my part, I promise that I'm going to go watch the movie Groundhog Day again. That's a really good movie.